This seminar is about a very sticky problem. The problem to which the Buddha primarily addressed himself, which is that of agony, suffering. But before we get into that, we have to be clear about certain basics. And these basics have to do not so much with concepts and ideas as they do with the state of mind. You could call it also a state of feeling, a state of sensation, a state of consciousness. And we need to understand that, even be in that, before we can really go very far. And this is an extraordinarily difficult state of mind to talk about, even though in its nature it's extremely simple. Because it is in a way like we were when we were babies. When we hadn't been told anything and didn't know anything other than what we felt and we had no names for it. Now, of course, as we grow older, we learn to differentiate one thing from another, one event from another, and above all, ourselves from everything else. Well and good, provided you don't lose the foundations. Just as mountains are differentiated, but they're all based on the earth, so the multiple things of this world are differentiated. But they have, as it were, a basis. There is no word for that basis, not really because words are only for distinction. And so there can't really be a word, not even an idea, of the non-distinction. We can feel it, but we can't think it. But we don't feel it like an object. You feel you're alive. You feel you're conscious, but you don't know what consciousness is because consciousness is present in every conceivable kind of experience. It's like the space in which we live, which is everywhere. It's like a fish being in water, and presumably a fish doesn't know it's in the water, because it never goes out. A bird presumably knows nothing of the air, and we really know nothing of consciousness, and we pretend space isn't there. <laughs> so, however, when you grow up, and become fascinated, which is really the right word, spellbound, enchanted, by all the things that adults wave at you. You forget the background. And you come to think that all the distinctions which you've been learning are the supremely important things to be concerned with. You become hypnotized just in the same way as when the beak of a chicken is put to a chalk line, it gets stuck on that line. And so when we are told to pay attention to what matters, we get stuck with it, and that's what in Buddhism is called attachment. Attachment doesn't mean that you enjoy your dinner, or that you enjoy sleeping, or beauty, 
those are responses of our organism in its environment as natural as feeling hot near a fire or cold near ice. So are certain responses of fear or of sorrow. They are not attachment. Attachment is exactly translated by the modern slang term hang-up. It's a kind of stickiness, or what in psychology would be called blocking, when you are in a state of wobbly hesitation, not knowing how to flow on. That's attachment, what is meant by the Sanskrit word klesha. So when the chicken has its beak put to the chalk line, it's got a hang-up. It's stuck on that line. And so in the same way, we get a hang-up on all the various things that we are told as we grow up by our parents, our aunts and uncles, our teachers, and above all, by our peer group. And the first thing that everybody wants to tell us is the difference between ourselves and the rest of the world, and between those actions which are voluntary and those which are involuntary, what we do on the one hand and what happens to us on the other. And this is, of course, immensely confusing to a small child because it's told to do all sorts of things that are really supposed to happen, like going to sleep, like having bowel movements, like uh, loving people, like not blushing, stopping being anxious, and all sorts of things like that. So what happens is this. The child is told in sum that we, your parents, elders and betters, command you to do what will please us only if you do it spontaneously. <laughs> <laughs> and no wonder everybody's completely confused we go through life with that burden on us <laughs> so we therefore develop this curious thing we, we, we develop a thing which is called an ego now I've got to be very clear to you what I mean by an ego An ego is not the same thing as a particular living organism. For my philosophy, the particular living organism, which is inseparable from a particular environment, that is to say from the universe as centered here and now, is something real. It isn't a thing. I call it a feature of the universe. But what we call our ego is something abstract, which is to say it has the same order and kind of reality as an hour or an inch or a pound or a line of longitude. It is for purposes of discussion. It is for convenience. In other words, it is a social convention that we have what is called an ego. But the fallacy that all of us make is that we treat it as if it were a physical organ, as if it were real in that sense, when in fact it is composed on the one hand 
of our image of ourselves. That is our idea of ourselves, as when we say to somebody, you must improve your image. Now, this image of ourselves is obviously not ourselves. Any more than an idea of a tree is a tree. Any more than you can get wet in the word water. And to go on with, our image of ourselves is extremely inaccurate and incomplete. Would that some God, the gifted, gives to see ourselves as others see us. We don't. So my image of me is not at all your image of me. And my image of me is extremely incomplete in that it does not include any information to speak of about the functioning of my nervous system, my circulation, my metabolism, my subtle relationships with the entire surrounding human and non-human universe. So the image I have of myself is a caricature. It is arrived at through mainly my interaction with other people who tell me who I am in various ways, either directly or indirectly, and I play about with what their picture is of me and they play something back to me so that we set up this conception. And this started very, very early in life. And I was told, you see, and you were told, that we must have a consistent image. You must be you. You have to find your identity in terms of image. And this is an awful red herring. A lot of the current quest for identity among younger people is a search for an acceptable image. What role can I play? Who am I in the sense of what am I going to do in life? And so on. Now, while that has a certain importance, if it's not backed up by deeper matters, it's extraordinarily misleading. So therefore, on the one hand, there is this image, which is intellectual, emotional, imaginative, and so forth. Now, we would say, I don't feel that I am only an image. I feel there's something more real than that, because I feel, I mean, I have a sense of there being a particular sort of how do we say, a center of something, some sort of sensitive core inside the skin. And that corresponds to the word I. Let's take a look at this. Because the thing that we feel as being myself is certainly not the whole body. Because a lot of the body can be seen as an object. In other words, if you stand, stretch yourself out, lie on the floor, and turn your head and look at yourself, you know, you can see your feet and your legs and all this up to here, and finally it all vanishes, only there's a sort of a vague nose in front. And you assume you have a head because everybody else does, and you've looked in a mirror, and that told you you had a head, but you could never see it, just like you can't see your back. So you tend to put your ego on the side of the unseen part of the body. 
the part you can't get at, because that seems to be where it all comes from, and you feel it. But what is it that we feel? Because if I see clearly, and my eyes are in functioning order, the eyes certainly are not conscious of themselves. There are no spots in front of them, no defects, in other words, in the lens or in the retina or in the optic nerves that give hallucinations. So also, therefore, if my ego, my consciousness is working properly, I ought not to be aware of it as something sort of there, being a nuisance in a way in the middle of things because your ego is awfully hard to take care of. <laughs> well, what is it then that we feel? Well, I think I've discovered what it is. It's a chronic, habitual sense of muscular strain, which we were taught in the whole process of doing spontaneous things to order. When you're taking off in a jet plane, and the thing has gone rather further down the runway than you think it should have without getting up in the air, you start pulling at your seatbelt get this thing off the ground. Perfectly useless. So in the same way, when our community tells us, look carefully, now listen, pay attention, we start using muscular strains around our eyes, ears, jaws, hands, to try to use our muscles to make our nerves work which is, of course, futile. And in fact, it gets in the way of the functioning of the nerves. Try to concentrate. And then when we try to control our emotions, we hold our breath, pull our stomachs in, or tighten our rectal muscles to hold ourselves together. Now, pull yourself together! Immediately, what are you to do? What does a child understand by that? He does it muscularly. Pulls himself together. This is useless. So everybody chronically pulls themselves together so that it's so funny if you get a person to just lie on the floor and relax. But there's the floor under you as firm as can be holding you up. Nevertheless, you will detect that the person is making all sorts of tensions lest he should suddenly turn into a nasty jello on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> So that chronic tension, which in Sanskrit is called sankocha, which means contraction, is the root of what we call the feeling of the ego. So that in other words, this feeling of tightness is the physical referent for the psychological image of ourselves. So that we get the ego as the marriage of an illusion to a futility. Even though the idea of an I with a name, with a being, is naturally useful for social communication, provided we know what we're doing and take it for what it is. But we are so hung up on this concept that it confuses us even in the proposition that it might be possible for us to feel otherwise. Because we ask the question, if we hear about people who have uh, transcended the ego, well, we ask, how do you do that? Well, I say, what do you mean? 
you, how do you do that? Because the you you're talking about doesn't exist. So you can't do anything about it. Any more than you can cut a cheese with a line of longitude. <laughs> now that sounds very discouraging, doesn't it? But let's suppose now you are babies again. And you don't know anything. Now, don't be frightened, because anything you know you can get back later. But for the time being, here is our awareness. And let's suppose you have no information about this at all and no words for it. And that my talking to you is just a noise. Now, don't try to do anything about this. Don't make any effort. Because naturally, by force of habit, certain tensions remain inside you and certain ideas and words drift all the time through your mind. Just like um, the wind blows or clouds move across the sky. Don't bother with them at all. Don't try to get rid of them. Just be aware of what's going on in your head like it was clouds in the sky or the crackling of the fire. There's no problem to this. All you have to do, really, is look and listen without naming, and if you are naming, never mind. Just listen to that. Now, that you can't force anything here, that you can't willfully stop thinking and stop naming, is only telling you that the separate you doesn't exist. It isn't a mark of defeat. It isn't a sign of your lack of practice in meditation. That it runs on all by itself simply means that the individual separate you is a figment of your imagination. So you are aware at this point of a happening. Remember, you don't know anything about the difference between you and it. You haven't been told that. You've no words for the difference between inside and outside, between here and there, and nobody has taught you that what you see out in front of you is either near or far from your eyes. Watch a baby put out a finger to touch the moon. You don't know about that. Just, therefore, 
Here it is. We'll just call it this. And if you will feel it, the going on, which includes absolutely everything you feel, Well, whatever that is, it's what the Chinese call Tao, what Buddhists call suchness or Tathata. And it's a happening. It doesn't happen to you, because where is that? You, what you call you, is part of the happening, <laughs> or an aspect of it has no parts, it's not like a machine. And it's a little scary because you'd say, well, who's in control around here? Why should there be anyone? Now, that's an, a very weird notion we have that processes require something outside them to control them. It never occurred to us that processes could be self-controlling. Even though we say to someone, control yourself. We can always, in order to think about self-control, we split a person in two. So that there's a you separate from the self that's supposed to be controlled. Well, how can that achieve anything? How can a noun start a verb? Yet it's a fundamental superstition that that can be done. So you have this process which is quite spontaneous, going on. We call it life. It's controlling itself. It's aware of itself. It's aware of itself through you. You are an aperture through which the universe looks at itself. And because of it's the universe looking at itself through you, there's always an aspect of itself that it can't see. So it is like that snake, you see, that is pursuing its tail. Because the snake can't see its head, like you can't. We always find, as we investigate the universe, make the microscope bigger and bigger, and we will find ever more minute things. Make the telescope bigger and bigger and bigger, and the universe expands, because it's running away from itself. It won't do that if you don't chase it. <laughs> 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 so it's a game of hide and seek really when you ask the question who is doing the chasing you are still working under the assumption that every verb has to have a subject that when there is an action, there has to be a doer. Well, that's a, what I will call a grammatical convention leading to what Whitehead called the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Like the famous it in It Is Raining. 
so when you say there cannot be knowing without a knower, this is merely saying no more than there can't be a verb without a subject. And that's a grammatical rule and not a law of nature. Anything you can think of as a thing, as a noun, can be described by a verb. And there are languages which do that. It sounds awkward in English. But face it. When you look for doers as distinct from deeds, you can't find them. Just as when you look for stuff underlying the patterns of nature, you can't find any stuff. You just find more and more patterns. There never was any stuff. It's a ghost. What we call stuff is simply patterns seen out of focus. And it's fuzzy. So we call it stuff. <laughs> you know, like that K-pop. <laughs> so, you know, we have these words, energy, matter, being, reality, even Tao. And we can never find them. They always elude us entirely. Although we do have the very strong intuition that all this that we see is connected or related. So we speak of a universe, although that word really means one term. It's your turn now. <laughs> or like you make one turn to look at yourself. But you can't make two turns and see what's looking. <laughs> so it's very simple, therefore. You only have to understand that you can't do anything about it. And as they say in Zen, you cannot take hold of it, but you can't get rid of it. And in not being able to get it, you get it. So all these trials that gurus put their students through, have as their ultimate object convincing you that you can't do anything. Only it's convincing you very thoroughly. It's convincing you in more than a theoretical way. Now, perhaps I shouldn't tell you that. But you see, I'm not a guru in that I don't give individual spiritual direction to people. And I give away the guru's tricks. That may not be very good, but on the other hand, those tricks are only necessary in the sense that I would say to someone, it's necessary for you to go to a psychiatrist if you think you must. And if you are not going to be satisfied without going to Japan and studying Zen Buddhism from a Roshi, okay, you better go. It isn't necessary unless you say it is if that's the only thing that will satisfy you, and you feel that deep down inside you. If you've got that yen, therefore you've got that yen. But if on the other hand you haven't, you haven't. And I'm not going to put you down on that account, you see. The point is, what do you want to do? What is it in you to do? But there it is, that you can struggle and struggle and struggle, 
and indeed will do so, as long as you have the feeling inside you that you're missing something. And people, your friends, all sorts of people will do their utmost to persuade you that you're missing something. <laughs> because they're missing something and they think they're getting it through a certain way. And therefore, to assure themselves, they'd like you to do it too. So there's this thing. And you see, a clever guru beguiles his students by letting them have the feeling of success and accomplishment in certain directions. A guru gives people exercises, A, that are difficult but can be accomplished, and B, that are impossible. You'll always be hung up on the impossible ones, but the possible ones you will feel, get a feeling of making progress so that you will double your efforts to solve the impossible exercises. And then they range things in many, many ranks and levels through which you can advance. This stage of consciousness, that state of consciousness, or think of the degrees of masonry, or so on. Ranks in learning things, the different belts you get in judo and all that kind of jazz. You can do that. And it gives people the sense of competing with themselves or even with others. Because of the feeling inside that there is just something I'm missing. And of course, if you are learning any sort of skill and you haven't perfected the skill, there is indeed something you're missing. But in this thing that we're talking about, that isn't true. Because you, as the Buddhists say, are Buddhas from the very beginning. And all that searching is like looking for your own head, which you can't see and therefore might conceivably imagine that you're lost. So, that indeed is the point, that we don't see what looks, and therefore we think we've lost it. And so we're in search of the self, the Atman. Well, that's the one thing we can't find. <laughs> because we have it. We are it. <laughs> but we confuse it with all these images. So therefore, if you understand perfectly clearly that you can't do anything, to find that very, very important thing, God, enlightenment, nirvana, whatever. Then what? Well, I find, you know, it's so stupid, because even if I tell myself, well, there's nothing I can do about it, why did I say that? You see? Why did I say that? Why did I go out of my way to tell myself there's nothing I can do about it? Because in the back of my mind there was a funny little feeling that if I did tell myself that, something different would happen. See? All right. So even that doesn't work. Nothing works. Now, when absolutely nothing works, where are you? Well, here we are. I mean, you know, there's this feeling of something going on. 
Now, the world doesn't stop dead when there's nothing you can do. There's something happening. Now, just there, that's what I'm talking about. There's the happening. When you are not doing anything about it, you're not not doing anything about it, you just can't help it. It goes on despite anything you think or worry about or whatever. Now, there is the point. Right there. And remember, although you will think at first that this is a kind of determinism, there are two reasons why it isn't. One, there is nobody being determined. Now, other people think of determinism as the direction of what happens by the past, the causation of what happens by the past. Now, if you will use your senses, you will see that that is a hallucination. The present does not come from the past. If you listen, and only listen, close your eyes, where do the sounds come from, according to your ears? You hear them coming out of silence. The sounds come and then they fade off. They go like echoes, or echoes in the labyrinths of your brain, which we call memories. The sounds don't come from the past. They come out of now and trail off. You can do that later with your eyes. You can see, like when you're watching television, there's a vibration coming out from the screen to your eyes. And it starts from there somehow. Because we see the hands and then they move. We think that the movement is caused by the hands, and that the hands were there before, and so can move later. We don't see that our memory of the hands is an echo of their always being now. They never were, they never will be, they're always now. So is the motion. And that, that is recollected is the trailing off echo like the wake of a ship. And so just as the wake doesn't move the ship, the past does not move the present, unless you insist that it does. And if you say, well, naturally I'm always moved by the past, that's an alibi. And it completely fails to explain how you ever learn anything new. <laughs> That's why all the psychologists who are mostly behaviorists are completely bogged down in trying to find a theory of learning. Because according to the, the theory of learning that we have, everything that new that you assimilate is really only learned when translated into terms of what you already know. So. In that sense, learning becomes like a library which increases only by the addition of books about books already in it. <laughs> a lot of libraries are indeed like that. So, that's what we call scholasticism. 
so then, you become aware that this happening isn't happening to you because you are the happening. The only you there is is what's going on. Yeah, feel it. And disregard these stupid distinctions that you've been taught. I mean, stupid, relatively speaking. And feel it genuinely. When you feel it genuinely, you get down to rock bottom, all that isn't there. That's a game that's been erected on it. And it isn't determined. In other words, you get this odd feeling of a synthesis between doing and happening in which doing is as much happening as happening, and happening is as much doing as doing. And if you are not very careful at that point, you'll proclaim yourself God Almighty in the Hebrew Christian sense. <laughs> like Freud alleges babies feel that they're omnipotent. And in a way they are. I am omnipotent insofar as I'm the universe. But I'm not I'm omnipotent in the role of Alan Watts. Only cunning. <laughs> <laughs> so now then, this sensation of the happening is basic to all we want to explore. With that in mind, we can go on now to the question of pain and our so-called reactions to it. And once again you will see that the problem as posed immediately sets up the duality of the pain and the one who suffers it the one who offers resistance and therefore reasoning from that you can quite easily see that a great deal of the energy of pain is derived from the resistance offered to it and that resistance takes very many forms not only of attempts to get away from a pain which is present. Let's suppose you try to run away from a migraine headache. As you carry it with you, you can't get away from it, and it seems to be absolutely in the middle of everything that you are. So that however much you thresh and resist, the pain goes with the threshing. Other forms of pain are problematic to a large extent because of our prior anxiety about them and because of the valuations that we put on them. And we may as well start from that point. And what we very largely dislike about people in pain as the noise they make. When I challenged R.H. Blythe and said, you're a vegetarian, but don't you realize that plants have feelings? He said, yes, I do, but they don't scream so loudly. 
And so, uh, say, in a hospital or any place like that, it is taboo to scream. Because you must understand that hospitals and any institution of that kind is run for the convenience of the staff. <laughs> All institutions are. <laughs> and so, everything is done in such a way as to interiorize, localize pain. Of course, in a way that makes it worse. So we have a big, big social problem, fundamental, right from the beginning, about our reaction to anything painful. And these are very odd things. Let's take, for example, when a child has eaten something that doesn't agree with it and it vomits. Now, you well know that when you've got a bad stomach, that vomiting is a very pleasant release from that. But because when mama sees the vomit, or somebody else does, they say, ugh, you are taught that doing it is socially unacceptable, and therefore people suppress vomiting and learn from their parents that it's nasty, just as they learn that excrement is nasty, and just as they learn to worry about disease and death. Now, there really isn't anything radically wrong with being sick or with dying. Who said you're supposed to survive? Who gave you the idea that it's a gas to go on and on and on? <laughs> and we can't say that it's a good thing for everything to go on living from the very simple demonstration that if we enable everybody to go on living, we overcrowd ourselves. That we're like an unpruned tree. And so, therefore, uh, one person who dies, in a way, is honorable because he's making room for others. And the panic that all life everywhere must be saved although each one of us individually will naturally appreciate it when anybody saves our life. If we apply that case, you see, all around, we can see that it's not workable. We can also look further into it and see that if our death could be indefinitely postponed, we would not actually go on postponing it indefinitely. Because after a certain point, we would realize that that isn't the way in which we wanted to survive. Why else would we have children? Because children arrange for us to survive in another way. by, as it were, passing on a torch 
so that you don't have to carry it all the time. There comes a point where you can give it up and say, now you work. It's a far more amusing arrangement for nature to continue the process of life through different individuals than it is always with the same individual. Because as each new individual approaches life, life is renewed. And one remembers how fascinating the most ordinary everyday things are to a child. Because they see them all as marvelous, because they see them all in a way that is not related to survival and profit. And when we get to thinking of everything in terms of survival and profit value, as we do, then the shapes of scratches on the floor cease to have magic. And most things, in fact, cease to have magic. So therefore, in the course of nature, once we have ceased to see magic in the world anymore, we are no longer fulfilling nature's game of being aware of itself. There's no point in it anymore. And so we die. And so something else comes to birth, which gets an entirely new view. And so nature's self-awareness is a game worth the candle. It is not, therefore, natural for us to wish to prolong life indefinitely. But we live in a culture where it has been rubbed into us in every conceivable way that to die is a terrible thing. And that is a tremendous disease from which our culture in particular suffers. And we notice it firstly in the way in which death is swept under the carpet. This is one of the major problems in hospital work. When a family conspires with the doctor to keep from grandmother the knowledge that she is dying. Grandmother suspects that she is dying, but probably doesn't really want to know for sure. And her family talk with her in such a way as to say, well, it'll be, you, you, you'll probably be getting all right in a few weeks, and won't it be nice to be able to do this, that, and the other, uh, because they have this funny feeling that it's important to build up courage and hope and so they become liars and a mutual mistrust develops uh, because once you are playing the game on that level you tend to play the mistrust on other levels. And so the person is left to die alone, suddenly, unprepared and doped up to the point where death hardly happens. And there is no derivation from it of the peculiar spiritual experience that can come with death.
Back in 1958, I was in Zurich and there met a most extraordinary man by the name of Karlfried von Dürkheim. He was a former German diplomat who had studied Zen in Japan. And when he came back after the war, he opened a meditation school and retreat in the Black Forest. And he said, well, I tell you what, a lot of my work has to do with people who went through spiritual crises during the war. And he said, you know, uh, we, we all know that when a person's in an absolutely extreme situation and they accept it, there is a possibility of a natural satori. And that's what I mean when I was explaining that when one gets to an extreme, that is to say, to the point where you realize that there is nothing you can do about life, nothing you cannot do about life, then you're the mosquito biting the iron bull. Well, so in the same way, he said, look, you heard a bomb coming at you. You could hear it whistle and you knew it was right above you and headed straight at you and that you were finished. And you accepted it. And suddenly, there was a strange feeling that everything is absolutely clear. You suddenly see that there isn't a grain of dust in the whole universe that's in the wrong place. That you understand completely, absolutely, totally, what it's all about. Because you can't say what it is. But he said, in so many cases, the bomb was a dud, and they lived to tell the tale. Or he said, you were in a concentration camp. You've been there so long that you gave up all hope whatsoever, ever getting out. You were just going through this miserable, boring, degrading grind, week after week after week. Nobody paid the slightest attention to you as an individual. You knew you would never get out, and you accepted it. And suddenly, something changed. Six extraordinary feeling of freedom. Or he said, you were a displaced refugee. You had lost your family. You didn't know whether they even existed. You were miles from your home. You didn't know whether it existed. You had lost your job, your very identity. You were absolutely nowhere. And you accepted it. And suddenly, you were as light as a feather and free as the air. Now, he said, so many people have had those experiences and they talk about them to their families and friends and they say, oh, well, you were under terrific pressure and you probably had some hallucination, you know? Well, he said, I am showing those people that so far from having a hallucination, those were the few, few occasions in which they woke up. So, you see, this is always the opportunity presented by death. That if one can go into death with eyes open and have somebody help you, if necessary, to give up before you die, this extraordinary thing can happen to you. So that from your standpoint, in that position, at that time, you would say, 
I wouldn't have missed that opportunity for the world. Now I understand why we die. The reason we die is to give us the opportunity to understand what life's all about. By letting go. Because then we come to a situation that the ego can't deal with. When we are no longer hypnotized by that, then our natural consciousness can see clearly what all this universe is for. So, therefore, we have missed this golden opportunity by institutionalizing death out of the way instead of having a socially understood acceptance of death and rejoicing in death. Now, I could imagine that uh, one person would want to rejoice in death in an entirely different way from another. Like, um, say, a wedding is a rite of passage. Uh, there are certainly some forms of celebrating a wedding which I would find a total bore and quite offensive. Other ways would be very good. I would enjoy it. So everybody, in other words, I'm not saying that you've got to get mixed up with a lot of people coming, laughing around you and giving you presents and cards and everything because you're going to die. <laughs> but I'm only indicating a general thing, that the doctor, the the, the ministers, the psychiatrists, and above all, us, really owe it to our friends to work out an entirely new approach to death. Because what has happened, you see, from earliest childhood, the child learned that great-uncle was dying and saw the family put on long faces and say, oh, that's too bad. Even Christians who think they're going to go to heaven you know, they get absolutely morbid, more so than anybody else about death, because heaven, as they all know, is a very boring place. <laughs> and so, this frightful thing, oh, he's dead, you know. Now one understands that for the living, to lose someone you love, or even for a dying person to worry about what on earth my wife, my children, my whatever are going to do without me. One can understand a certain worry in that. But nobody is indispensable. And there comes a point when you have to say, I'm sorry, but I am completely going to abandon responsibility for anything because there is no further way I can do it. This is another way of that surrender. And then the curious thing that occurs is the moment all that has dropped, suddenly it dawns on you. That to be important, existence does not have to go on any longer than a moment. Quantitative continuity is of no value. How long can you hold your breath? Who cares? <laughs> so, it follows from that, you see, that if any one of us, without being shocked into it by being bombed or put in a concentration camp, 
could at this moment be as one about to die. Genuinely and honestly, we would understand the mystery of life. Because death is the, is it, in a certain sense, the source of life. Just as we see in nature, when the leaves fall from the trees, they mold and rot, and this supplies humus from which more plants can grow. It's a cycle like that. But in every way, symbolic and otherwise, human beings try to stop that cycle. Unamuno said, human beings are the only species that hoard their dead. And therefore, with the ghastly art of the mortician, we try to make the body unpalatable to the worms, and so to stop life, as if to be eaten in due course were an indignity to the human being, whereas we eat everything else and we give nothing back. So that is a kind of a social symptom of our profound disorientation with respect to death. We think death is unnatural and, furthermore, in our culture, we think birth is a disease and send a mama to the hospital for the most unnatural, weird kind of parturition. In other words, more and more one regards the healthy and inevitable and natural transformations of the body as pathological. I can imagine, you know, people having sexual intercourse on an operating table to be sure that the whole thing is hygienic. <laughs> you know, uh, the, everything about us like that is, is, is become over interfered with by specialists and less and less the province of our own preferences. It's very, very hard indeed to die in your own way without some blasted bunch of relatives come fussing around and insisting that you go to a hospital, that you get fixed with the tortures of being fed through tubes and things to keep you alive indefinitely and waste the family savings. It's even a crime to commit suicide. Now, this is sim simply nonsense. It's this perfect panic to survive at all costs. Now, let's get practical. You say, okay, I understand what you are saying theoretically. But I know that I would be terrified if somebody was going to tell me that I'm going to die. And that I would look frantically around for some doctor, some sort of something. That this panic to live is in us in an uncontrollable way, and this is part of the reason why we say we have an instinct to survive. The instinct is this panic. So let's take another step now, in the same way as I showed you steps about realizing that you don't have an ego. You say to yourself in the ordinary way, when you feel that panic, you feel a bit ashamed of it even though you've been taught that you should do everything possible to survive. See what a bind you're in here? So one feels, oh goodness, I must face this thing calmly and bravely 
and not be in this panic. But the point of the fact is, you are in a panic, and you can't stop it. Now that's very important, because this is another way of showing you the same thing that death is showing you, that you can't do anything about it. Just as when you finally realize you can't do anything about the death, you could have solved all that before by understanding you couldn't do anything about the panic. But if you think all the time, I'm supposed to stop this panic, then all that happens is you're at cross-purposes with yourself again. The panic is, of course, put off in the ordinary way. We all know we're going to die. But it's sufficiently far off so that we can put it out of our minds. And anybody who does put it into our minds in the ordinary way is taken to be a skeleton at the banquet, a Cassandra, and gloomy. So that the old-fashioned preacher of bygone days who preached about death and those monks who kept skulls on their desks and uh, all that sort of thing is regarded today as very morbid. Why, in the Baroque times, there was a fashion for a while of making tombstones with marvelous sculptures of skeletons and bones all over them. And on the Via Veneto in Rome, there is a Capuchin church where down in the crypt there are chapels made where the altar furnishings and everything are made entirely from the bones of departed monks. Then we have in among Tibetans and in Buddhists graveyard meditations. And they have trumpets in Tibetan Buddhism made of human thigh bones. And they have cups, ritual cups, made of the domes of human skulls, richly worked in silver and turquoise. And we say all that is very morbid. So, from this point of view, you can see, first of all, theoretically, how death can solve its own problem. Now, if you say, I can only see it theoretically, and I can't go the whole way with you, then I will ask you, what is blocking you? Will you say, it gives me the heebie-jeebies and the horrors? I say, all right, so death is not the problem, the heebie-jeebies is the problem. So let's deal with the heebie-jeebies in the same way as with death. You cannot stop the heebie-jeebies. You think you should. I say, don't. The heebie-jeebies are very valuable. Not that they will stop you from dying, but because from them you will learn the same thing as you would learn from dying. But the social pressure on you to resist the heebie-jeebies is terrific. Now, why must you do that? Why is everybody saying these heebie-jeebies, these fears, etc., are not permissible? You wonder about that. And the reasoning behind all that is not very clear because it seems to be saying, well, if you have all these fears and things like that, 
you, you won't be a very good soldier. You won't be able to act competently in a crisis. You'll get the heebie-jeebies instead and you won't know what to do. Well, nobody has ever really proved that. Because actually, people who we would call very courageous are in fact often quite frightened. And courageous action is not necessarily a consequence of having no fear. Sometimes it might be, but it isn't always so. The real reason why the heebie-jeebies are suppressed has more to do with its orgiastic aspects. Wherever the human organism gets into a certain kind of extreme, it starts an oscillating process going. Just as it does in sexual orgasm. And that oscillating process will inspire in others an emotion which they cannot identify either as disgust or as lust. They don't know quite what it is. All those extreme situations, terror and, as we shall see more, response to pain, have an orgiastic quality. And they are therefore embarrassing because they conflict with our image of ourselves as in control, composed, deported. <laughs> That's in the sense of deportment. <laughs> but uh, it would be shameful in a way you, you might not want to look at your own face in a state of complete sexual rapture. As a matter of fact, if you saw a photograph of your face, you wouldn't be able to tell whether you were in pleasure or in pain. It might be either. Because then, you see, what has happened is that a tide, a vibration, a pulsation, has taken over the whole being so that you are, as it were, in the possession of a god. And that's something taboo. So we begin here to move into a very difficult area because a lot of people were beginning to say this conversation is getting out of line because we are moving into what are normally called perverse experiences. And the two critical forms of perverse experience are sadism and masochism, where there is the association of pain and ecstasy in sadism, 
the confusion of another person's suffering with that person's sexual orgasm. In masochism, the identification, or if you want to say confusion, of your own suffering with sexual orgasm. Now we say, well, that's, that's pathological, that's absurd. But it exists. People do it all the time, both ways, and sometimes both together. And although this is generally put under the heading of pathology, the fact remains that we can still learn something from it. There's an important principle in there. Somehow, somewhere. And perhaps in people who are sadists and masochists, the phenomenon is somehow out of hand because they don't understand the principle. Now, do you realize many sadists want nothing more than that their victim should enjoy the pain? The combination sadist and masochist is perfect. And many sadists would be quite reluctant if the victim really didn't like participating in this at all. And so there's the joke of the masochist asking the sadist to beat him, and he says, I won't. <laughs> but what happens here is that pain and the attendant convulsive behavior of the organism is associated with the erotic a different value is given to the same symptoms as, say, it is common in France to get a young woman really aroused, you know, and she will say, Kimwa, Kimwa, kill me, kill me, as if to, you know, to go as far as you can in throwing yourself away to somebody else, you know, do anything you want to. And in that abandon, you see, there is the possibility that this, an undulation of feeling, which is total orgiastic feeling, may take over. And in that feeling, you see, you are one with what is happening completely. And that's what everybody, as it were, finally aspires to. So, therefore, the masochist in particular is a person who has learned throughout life to defend himself against pain by eroticizing pain. Now, do you understand how, therefore, different valuations can be put on one and the same vibration? We see, don't we, all that we experience is understandable as a spectrum of vibrations. There are different kinds of spectra. There's the spectrum of light, there's the spectrum of sound. We can also think of spectra of smells, of tactile feelings, of emotions, and so on, all down the line. We are, as it were, living in the midst of a woven tapestry 
of many dimensions in which the warps and the woofs are all these different spectra of various kinds of vibrations. And as on the loom, the warp crosses the woof, and if you didn't have one, you wouldn't have the other. It takes two to reveal the pattern. So see yourselves as patterns in a weaving system. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for the interlocking of all these different spectra of dimensions. So then, here they go, and these things are vibrating. Now, when it reaches a certain point, you say, oh, that's too much. And when it reaches another point, you say, it's not enough. Why, there's nothing here. I don't feel a thing. No, I'm going to go to sleep. But on the other end, you say, no, 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 you're going far enough. If you go any further, it's going to tear things apart. I can't withhold this tension, see? Now, so some people will say, all right, now, now relax, 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 take it easy, take it easy. But often you see the point is you can't do that. So then what I will say to the person who cannot relax, I will stress his tension. Go the other way. In other words, go with the line of least resistance. Say, okay, you're tense about all this. Now let's say, really tense. Let's scream, no, 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 no. See, you get violent inside. This is not to happen, see? But so that one way or the other, you see, it doesn't matter which you go, you begin to get into this thing, which is what is happening when the boat of life begins really to rock. Get rocking with it by whatever way is open. But you are not going to force the issue here. Instead of saying to you, you should be doing it another way than you're doing it, I will be saying, now find out the way you must do it and go that way. Now this is a general principle of an art. And we will find there is a kind of, uh, there are limits to this art and uh, how it can be used and so forth. But once the general principles are clear, there aren't many serious problems left. That if you begin to look at it in that way, you will begin to realize that ecstasy by one road or another is inevitable. That indeed ecstasy is in a way the nature of existence. There is a universe for the simple reason that it's ecstatic. What else is all this fireworks about? It, it is just like music in this ecstatic thing going off. And you have to be uh, certainly careful in a little way here that any initiation into a deep wisdom is apt at first to demotivate you. You think, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and all these projects and building this up and that up, or doing something to save the world, or so on and so forth. Oh, why, that whole thing is nonsense. Yes. If you stick there, that's what they call in Mahayana Buddhism, the Pratyeka Buddha. That means the private Buddha, as distinct from Bodhisattva, who comes back 
into everyday life, as they say, for the liberation of all other sentient beings. Because when you know that uh, all this is all right anyway, and that the situation is inevitable ecstasy, I mean, you're going to get it one way or another. And <laughs> <laughs> you say, well, what was all the fuss about, you know? The fact remains that a lot of people just don't know that and are really hating life, not knowing how to handle hate. And if you are at a certain point, you know those other people are you. They're like you had an extended body and all these were nerve ends on the end of it, you see. However, you know also that you can't really show them anything they don't already know and won't be able to show them anything else until they know it. <laughs> but then the question, what shall I do, has now disappeared. It should have disappeared in the beginning because there wasn't any real I, there was just the happening. And so that question brings us back again to the experience itself. See? And that's the only way that you can answer the question is from the experience. You could say, what would happen if? The answer is only, you must feel it, then you will know. And the people who hear about this and say, well, wouldn't that, I mean, wouldn't everybody become uh, totally callous and impassive? What, how can you assure me that that wouldn't happen? I say, I can't. But you must get into this state, then you'll find out. There's just no you to get into it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> This concludes Session 5 of Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. Our program continues with Session 6. I was making a basic comparison between the state of consciousness of a baby and that of a so-called mature adult, respectively what we would call undifferentiated and differentiated. The adult consciousness being highly selective and the baby consciousness being very open and hardly selective at all, and therefore unable to distinguish what adults consider to be the important things, which have to do with the conventions and rules that the positive aspects, whether they be called good or pleasant or life-giving and so on, must prevail over the negative aspects. 
And I went on to show that this contrast between the two views of the world has another marked characteristic that in the case of the baby who hasn't been trained or told about the difference between himself and all that is defined as other than himself doesn't distinguish between voluntary behavior and involuntary occurrence and of course we think this is a very fundamental defect but if we go back, you see, to a principle that underlies the whole universe with a kind of mathematical exactitude, we see that if we reduce things to the situation of primal simplicity, and we have a primordial self and other situation, that is to say, two balls in space, there is absolutely no way of telling when they move which one of them is moving or which one is still. They must necessarily appear to move mutually. There's no point of reference except each other to determine which is moving and which is still. Now everything that goes on in the universe is simply a complication of that principle. Because the same thing holds true if you multiply the number of balls. You will see that that primordial principle, that all movement is mutual, still applies. And therefore, the baby's failure to distinguish between the voluntary and the involuntary, the I and the other, is in a way correct. Psychologists psychoanalysts in particular, make a great deal of this contrast and consider that the baby's view is inferior to the adult's. And if an adult should acquire that view in psychoanalysis, this would be called regression. The point that is missed is that the two ways of looking at things need each other balance out and that one needs the baby's view as a basis for the adult view because if you don't have it you take the adult view too seriously get completely carried away by it and that would be analogous to a person who in playing poker loses his nerve because he doesn't realize it's only a game. And so he becomes a very bad player. In exactly the same way, we in life are only playing a game. But because we didn't keep the baby view, we can't see it. So what we would call a Buddha view is one that knows both and therefore is not taken in by the adult games, although perfectly capable of playing them, but insofar as they are not regarded as finally and absolutely serious. 
he is not captivated by them. Now, therefore, one asks the question, that sounds very interesting, but how do I recapture the baby point of view? And I showed that that was the wrong question, because it arises entirely and exclusively out of the adult point of view. Because the adult point of view involves the fiction that I exist as an agent independently of everything else that's going on. And so ask, how can I do this? And the important thing is to realize that the feeling of there being this isolated I is part of the game and it has no fundamental reality except as a convention. And so long as that isn't clear, we're confused. I reiterated the point that when we ask to whom must it become clear or to whom is it not clear, that this too was all part of the illusion of the world that the adult presents to the child. So the only way in which the child's vision can come again is in the realization that the I can't do anything about it at all and can't even do nothing about it. All possibilities of vision for what we call I myself are out. And this, and of course, is the same meaning that the Christian or the Islamic mystics would say, that the mystical experience is the gift of God, and there's nothing you can do to get it. That's a clumsy way, really, of saying the same thing. Because so long as you are trying or not trying, you are aggravating the sensation of the separate ego. Now, that in itself, you see, as I talk about it, presents a certain difficulty. Or one thinks it's difficult. There would be a second difficulty if we were to go on and say, it isn't only the illusion of the ego, but the whole valuation system that we put on the complexity of vibrations we call awareness of life, all the various valuations that are put on this by the social game are maya, that is to say they are illusory, basically. Because it's only in play, as it were, that we say this is good and this is bad, this is advantageous, this is disadvantageous. And so we would go on to say after this, but I cannot imagine anything more difficult than overcoming that hypnosis. I am so enchanted by this system 
that the idea of treating it as not really very serious seems to me unthinkable. Of course, you have to think that. It's like a hypnotist working on somebody and saying, you are not going to remember any of this conversation after you come to. And so he's put the suggestion into you that you forget the whole thing. So in the same way, the suggestion has been put into all of us that these rules that we have learned are sacrosanct. And that we, they don't say you will not be able to think otherwise. They say they are true. They are the truth. You see? And that is the same function as the hypnotic suggestion put into us ever since we were receptive children. So naturally, it's all part of the conspiracy which we are playing on ourselves. We can't blame our parents for this because their parents played it on them and they bought it. And don't forget that time goes backwards. You see? <laughs> <laughs> you can't blame this on the past because now in the present you are creating the value the values of the past and you are buying them all along see so there's no no out on this you see in a way psychoanalytically one is given an out by saying well the parents didn't bring up their children properly and american people are consumed with guilt about the way they they bring up their children so we must abandon completely the notion of blaming the past for any kind of situation we're in and reverse our thinking and see that the past always flows back from the present, that now is the creative point of life. And so you see, uh, it's, it's like the idea of forgiving somebody. Uh, you change the meaning of the past by doing that. It's like also the, when you watch the flow of music. The melody, as it is expressed, is changed by notes that come later. Just as the meaning of a sentence, especially, say, take German or Latin, where there's the convention of placing a verb at the end of a sentence, you wait, in other words, till later to find out what the sentence means, according to our way of feeling it. So it is also in our language, if I say I love you, you don't know when I've said I what I is doing. I could say, I hate you. So we don't know until later. So in other words, the word love or the word hate changes the function of the word I. And then I was going to say, I love flowers. No, but I love you, you see? And so the word later changes the meaning of those that go before. The present is always changing the past. So, when you get the idea in your mind that 
The point of view I'm talking about is very difficult indeed to acquire. That idea is one you are putting there to stop yourself seeing the other point of view. And above all, you must not take that seriously. It is simply a method of postponing seeing the point now. So you have to see it now or never, because there is only now. If you say, well, tomorrow, the next day, maybe in another dozen lifetimes, I'll be ready. That means, simply and solely, I don't want to be bothered with it now. I'm even not interested in it now, so I've got an excuse for putting it off. Which is fine, that's perfectly okay. <laughs> you can put it off. There is no reason, there is no compulsion why you should come out of this illusion. That's why Oriental people do not tend, in the same way as Westerners, to be missionaries. And saying it's very urgent that you be saved. It isn't, unless you say so. I mean, unless you are so disturbed by the suffering and the problem of suffering that you've got to find some sort of escape. But if you don't want to, you can stay there. It's okay, there's lots of time. And maybe you'll see through it when you die. At least in the moment of death, <laughs> you'll see that it was all a fake. So, don't be scared about the idea of the difficulty of it. That's a red herring and it's quite irrelevant. And I don't think that teachers should talk quite so much about this as they do and saying oh this is going to take a long long time and a lot of practice and many years maybe it will maybe it won't but that's beside the point because it distracts it's like telling somebody that this is a very difficult book to read and it requires immense powers of concentration well that immediately kills your interest in it Instead of if I would say, well, now this is a most extraordinary book. It's just so fascinating. I've been working on it for years. And every time I, do, I, get, I just get so involved, I can't drop the thing. No? I mean, that's a far more encouraging attitude to a student than, uh, well, it's going to be very difficult. Except to very, very self-hating students who uh, somehow perversely enjoy suffering through it. I suppose that's, a, of course, a way too, but... All right, now, if we can see the first part, which is that the ego is purely fictitious, that it is a symbol or image of oneself, plus a sensation of muscular strain occasioned by trying to make this symbol an effective agent to control emotion, to concentrate, to direct the nervous operations of the organism. <laughs> 
then immediately it is clear that what we have called ourselves, what we have thought of as ourselves, isn't able to do anything at all, there follows this kind of silence in which there is nothing to do except watch what happens. But what is happening is watching itself. There is nobody apart from it watching it. And so we get into the state of meditation, or as I prefer to call it, contemplation. So then the next problem that arises is, well, what about all the other illusions? Although they are somehow integrated and centered upon the illusion of ego, nevertheless, the whole value system of what is important, what is not important, what is good, what is bad, what is pleasant, what is painful, has to be called in question. Not in order to destroy the whole value system, but in order to see it for what it is. And that's where we will object and say, well, surely that's a colossally difficult task because we are so long habituated to it. And we have been taught to believe that the longer we have been habituated to something, the more difficult it is to change it. And that is true if you believe it. And if you don't, it isn't. <laughs> so that's why it's always emphasized at any rate in Zen that when anything is to be done, it should be done immediately, without thinking it over in advance. Act at once. And you'll find that characteristic of people trained in Zen. They always act immediately. They don't uh, say, well, um, uh, mm, well, mm, when should we do this sort of thing? They just do it. Because that doesn't build up. It gives no time for the building up of all this reflection of, well, I've done this way for a long time and I really feel kind of draggy about uh, doing it another way. Yeah, it's like some people eat the same thing every day. And the idea of suddenly eating something else seems absolutely weird. I remember when I used to have lunch in London, in the city of London. I used to go to a rather fancy sandwich bar. And there was a very square young man in a derby hat who ordered exactly the same lunch every day. Fantastic. <laughs> and so it came that the man who served the bar, the moment he saw him coming in at the door, he had it there. <laughs> and he would have had a real qualm if somebody had suggested that instead of having a beef sandwich, he should have a smoked salmon one. <laughs> now then we get to this what we are aware of is a complex of vibrations and we have been conditioned to call them graduatingly good bad pleasant painful Whereas, as a matter of fact, they are nothing but vibrations. And if you look at any one of them by itself, you won't know where it is. That is to say, if you only know red, 
you can't see that it's red. You can only know that this is red by contrast with yellow and green and blue and violet. So you don't know that a sound is loud unless you know soft sounds, or you don't know that it's soft unless you know loud. And it is that comparison which gives us the feeling of uh, the spectrum as being varied. Otherwise, we wouldn't know. For example, when you watch television, you are actually seeing a single moving point moving over the screen. But it goes so fast that you see it in all these different places having different values of light. But let us supposing there was someone whose retina was not retentive in this way. He would look at the screen and see the moving point of light and say to human beings, I don't see what you see in this. <laughs> <laughs> now can we, therefore, get back not only to the situation where we see that the ego is a mere construct, but also where we see that all the values we put on the vibrations are arbitrary. And that we get to a position where we see the vibrations simply as the vibrations. And we would say then, well, surely all this is nonsense, which is correct. <laughs> The universe, I mean, is a kind of badoodida, 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 going on in this fantastic way. This is why music can be used as a meditative technique. Because a lot of music is, in, is, is nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. But it can be very interesting. So can you get back again to recollecting from childhood your pleasure in events that from your present point of view you would call entirely meaningless? That you could listen to a sound like a twanging metal and it goes boing, 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 and that's fascinating. Boing. <laughs> it's just boing. And that's, that's all it is. See? Now, if you can really get with boing, see? You can see the whole universe in boing. Really? Because every vibration that's possible implies all the others. And so, likewise, with a candle flame, with a reflection, with grain in wood, anything can, from this child point of view, be completely fascinating. Not because it means anything, but just for what it is that it is shaped so, 
There was a joke in Punch some time ago, many years ago, I remember, of, a, of an army doctor interviewing a private. And the private says, every time I shake my leg like this, it hurts. He said, God damn it, don't shake it. <laughs> but you know, when one has something that hurts, there's a subtle temptation to keep worrying it. Like if you have a filling out of a tooth, your tongue plays with the empty hole. And children will experiment with pain in this way. It's like a dare. Children are always playing the game of daring each other to do something forbidden. Because the risk of disapproval involved, the calamity that may follow from it, it makes it so exciting. And why on earth do people challenge disaster the way they do, doing all sorts of wildly adventurous things? Because obviously that gives a taste, a quality to a vibration that is extremely interesting. Why the craving for speed? So on. And it's only if you look very carefully at a vibration that you can see this point. That's why meditative exercises often involve a repetition process. Om, or saying a phrase, or doing an act like a mudra, over and over and over again. After a while it becomes meaningless. You can say your own name like the Sufis do and go on and on and on and on and on and finally it doesn't mean anything at all. It's just a noise. But it isn't just a noise, you see. The attitude of saying that something is just a noise or just a, a wiggle is an adult attitude. No wiggle to the child is just a wiggle. To the child, the elemental thing going on is blah, you know, I mean, it's just fantastic. <laughs> now, do you see why this is what mystics call ineffable? That is to say, you can't really talk about it. When I try to explain what I mean by digging a sound, I suddenly realize that I'm not really saying anything. And yet there are states of consciousness in which you can listen to sound and realize that that is the whole point of being alive. Just to go with this particular energy manifestation that is happening right at this moment. To be it. The whole world is the energy playing at doing all this, you see, like a kaleidoscope, jazzing. So if you watch that, 
watch it that way, you will be accused, of course, by those who are guardians of the game of doing something very dangerous. But you're going completely crazy. I mean, the number of theological texts I've read which express in one way or another this horror of everything becoming meaningless, the meaningless life, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Those people, you see, have not dared to look at it. Now, there's another way of looking at it, of course, where in states of acute depression, people see it all as meaningless, but not really meaningless. They see it all as a conspiracy of horror. Let's imagine that everything is mechanical. There are no living beings at all. There are a lot of beings that are such good computers that you can't tell the difference between them and what you thought were people. <laughs> But everything going on is simply clockwork. And uh, there's nobody home, although it puts on a convincing show that there is. So you get the feeling that the entire world is enameled tin or patent leather or plastic and tasteless, hollow, vulgar, like a Wurlitzer jukebox. <laughs> That's a very common feeling of people who get into acute depression. But you see there is still here evaluation. You are associating the world with the mechanical as distinct from the organic. And we have a tendency, you see, to put down the mechanical because obviously a plastic flower doesn't have the scent, doesn't have the soft feeling of a living flower. We'll perfume plastic flowers soon. But it, you know what it'll do. It'll smell vaguely like soap and it won't smell like a flower. So it'll be plastic smell. Now we know that, you see, and so we contrast it with the organic. In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't Again, we don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary-involuntary, we don't know the contrast organic-mechanical. Neither. So we get to what the Buddhists call tathata, suchness. Tathata, based on the word tat, that, da. Fundamentally, da-da. See? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's what's going on. Well, now this is what happens, you see, in the meditative state. As you are in that, you see 
everything is da. <laughs> da. And you're not saying anymore, well, that doesn't amount to anything. Because you've learned that when people do take you to the place that does amount to something, eventually it all collapses. The price of being taken to the place seriously, you see, where it really does amount to something, this at last is the real thing. The price you pay for that, you see, is the horrors about its opposite. And to the degree that you take that seriously, okay, you pay the price of the horrors. Now that's as a matter of fact all. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't take it seriously. I mean, to be specific, you are tremendously in love with someone. And you plan and plan and plan how possibly you can get this person to return your love. And they do. And this is the great event. This is fantastic. But that in the background of your mind is the thought that what if this person should be killed or some terrible thing happen? That always lurks behind the triumph of getting it so, of this intense, gorgeous feeling. Now, if you know that this is in a way an illusion, you can allow yourself to take it quite seriously. But always having a hintergedanke, a reservation, a thought way back, this is the game. And having that, as a matter of fact, you can take it seriously. Uh, you can allow yourself to get involved in life to the most ridiculous degree. Because you know it's all right. No, it's just these vibrations. And uh, so, wowee, let's, let's really get into it. That is why a person who might be enlightened, a bodhisattva, does not always present a kind of detached and indifferent attitude, but is perfectly free to allow emotions, attachments. Why, R. H. Blythe, who was a great Zen man, wrote me once and said, How are you these days? As for me, I have abandoned Satori altogether and I'm trying to become as deeply attached as I can to as many people and things as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm pointing out to you is that this basic seeing that it's all da, da, da provides a possibility for you to become involved in it much more incautiously than you normally are. To express feeling, to love, to uh, throw yourself at the mercy of uh, the goings-on completely, you see? So that this very perception of the illusion makes it possible to live up the illusion. And so if someone, therefore, is always in his attitude to life detached and reserved, it indicates, you see, that there's still a primordial fear of getting involved. And I 
must say that, you see, I can't understand that very well. I don't understand when people expect that a so-called enlightened person should not need this, that, and the other. It might be beautiful surroundings, it might be the love of the opposite sex, it might be, uh, I don't know what. You shouldn't need that. In other words, you should scrub everything down to basic, basic. And the end of that is, you know, let's scrub the planet. Let's get all this disease called life off it and have a nice clean rock. <laughs> I believe in color. I believe in, if you're going to do anything in the way of the illusory dance, let's live it up. Let's really do it. And let's not be, take ourselves so damn seriously that we have to be scrubbed all the time of any kind of ornamentation or frivolity. <laughs> oh, hooray! But you see what all this is dependent on. All this is dependent upon being able to get back to the point where it's da 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 da. Now that's what comes in meditation. Now, don't misunderstand me if I say practice in meditation. Don't be in a state of expectation, working day after day to improve your meditation. Meditation doesn't like that. You just do it. But it is true that as time goes on, and you are in that state of silence, you will see this quality of the world. Now the most difficult pains and problems to deal with are those that are monotonous. Whereas you can see the possibility of a kind of ecstatic self-abandonment in a catastrophic agony. What really gets people down are those ones that drag on day after day after day after day, like having to lie with bed sores in a very uncomfortable situation in traction or something of that kind, or a, just a perennial difficulty that drips, 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 drips like the water torture every day. Now this is the kind of situation in which meditation shows its value. That you are increasingly in a state of consciousness where the world is babbling. Every one of us has something, you know, that we say we don't like to do. Washing dishes, doing accounts. But when you get into the meditation consciousness, you see that nothing is more important than anything else, or less important. There is no way of wasting time. Because what is time for except to be wasted? <laughs> and you would be, furthermore, you've got your, you're accustomed now to sitting and doing nothing. I mean, meditation itself is the perfect waste of time. Out of Your Mind now continues with the next lecture from the Inevitable Ecstasy Lecture Series.
Now, I want to get down to the simplest possible nitty-gritty of what we've been talking about in a very easy way. To ask ourselves the question, quite fundamentally, what's all the trouble about? In other words, what is your state of mind when you contemplate the possibility of everything becoming nothing? All right, so the universe is a transitory system, like a bubble, like smoke, like foam on the water. And so, how easy? Just go along with it, dissolve. So, what's the problem? Why, why don't we want to give up? What do we think we're going to get by holding on and by resisting the dissolution? Now, I'm not saying at the moment that uh, as I'm a sort of preacher advocating giving up. What I'm interested in for you to feel is what do, what do you really feel like inside at the prospect of there being nothing, of this whole thing being a bubble that dissolves. You see, about death, the reality of approaching death, people are apt to feel chilly, cold, lonely, scared because it's an unknown. The, the most frightening thing about death is there might be something beyond it. And you don't know what it is. You remember facing the world as a child or at any time, the world is full of threats, mostly from other people. And there are monsters. There are all sorts of things which scare you, but beyond every monster is death. Dissolution is the end of it all. And by and large, the art of government is to fill that void beyond death with threats of a rather unspecified nature so that we can rule people by saying, if you don't do as I tell you, I'll kill you or you'll kill yourself. And so long as we can be scared of that, and so long as we can be made to think of death as a bad thing, we can be ruled. And that is why no government likes mystics. Because if we define the mystic as the person who is no longer scared of death, because the mystic is in the simplest possible language, the person who understands that you have to have nothing to have something. <laughs> so, you can't fundamentally scare the mystic with death. Because, say, well, what end can it all come to? What's all the trouble about? The most it can come to is nothing. I mean, there may be some troubles on the way of resisting this, basically resisting it. I mean, as you might say, the very cells in your body resist their dissolution. And so, in this resistance, there's an experience called pain, which we've been discussing. But beyond pain is, is annihilation. Or so it seems, anyway. What will it be like to go to sleep and never wake up? Nobody can think about it. 
But what is that state when you're teased out of thought? See, get with it. Going to sleep and never waking up. This is not, as you would fantasize it, a state of being in the dark forever. It is not like being buried alive. Because then there's an experience of darkness. Now I remember a little while ago uh, having at one of my seminars a girl who was born blind. And I had the most interesting discussion with her because she doesn't know what darkness is. The word is absolutely meaningless to her. Because she's never seen light. Now so, when you really think about nothingness, it, it becomes like what I've often referred to, is how your head looks to your eyes. And behind the eyes you don't see darkness, do you? Right now. You are not aware of a contrast of light here and black there. Behind the visual field, this way, you can't see darkness. There is simply nothing conceivable at all. Neither darkness nor light. See? All right. So, might one venture to say almost that that area of blankness we call death is what lies behind the eyes. In other words, it is what we can't think about <laughs> that's what's watching. <laughs> in other words, the farthest we can go in thinking about nothing, you see, we get to the root of the matter. Let me put this in another way. The world is form. Now, you cannot look for the origin of form in form. Because what you would get then would be a, a universe where you couldn't make out any form at all because there was so much of it. It would be like writing a letter on top of a newspaper and then putting a picture over that and then doing something else until there wasn't a single square millimeter of paper left, of blank paper. Nobody could read anything. But one can read, one can see form, one can see the world, simply because there's always emptiness behind it. So you see, in this way, emptiness being the mother of form. And you can always say, yes, only the form is there, that's all that's real. But that is only saying, it's all that is figure. What about background? It always has to be there. So let's go on then into our visualization, our imagination. Use your imagination for all it's worth. To think yourself into the fact that of this whole sense of importance, of vitality, of aliveness, of being, is simply a sudden experience which was nothing before it started and will be nothing after it's over. That is the simplest possible thing you could believe in. <laughs> it requires no intellectual effort, nothing.
Supposing that's the way it is. Now I repeat, what's your inside feeling about that? Supposing, let's say, you feel sorry. For whom is this sorrow? Who, when it's all over, will there be to feel sorry? You say, I regret now that this thing is going to come to an end. But when it's come to an end, nobody will either regret or uh, be happy about it. That will be that. So in a way, you can say, well, this feeling of sorrow that I have that it's going to come to an end is really rather irrelevant because let me look at the thing from the other direction. Supposing it never would come to an end. In other words, here is this alternation of joy and sorrow. And however happy I am today, I'm always going to feel miserable later on. And then maybe happy again, but then after that miserable. And this is never, never going to stop. I just can't get rid of the damn thing. Well, that's pretty depressing, isn't it? I mean, when you think it through. So you say, well, let's have, make a compromise between these two possibilities. One is that uh, this compromise is, in other words, that it will disappear altogether, but then it'll start again. Because when it starts again, it'll feel like it does now, which is that it never happened before. <laughs> so uh, you're, you're always in the same place, just like you feel now. That's supposing that the Hindus are right, that the universe lasts for 4,320,000 years and then it vanishes and then it starts and runs for another 4,320,000 years and then it vanishes and it does it again and it does it and does it and does it and does it and there is no end to this. But fortunately, because of the forgettery every 4,320,000 years, it doesn't become a totally insufferable bore. There is this blank space, this trough between the crests of the waves. You see? Now, the Hindus thought about that, and they got tired. And they, they thought about the possibility of moksha, liberation, or nirvana, from the everlasting cycle of appearing and disappearing. But then when they had thought that through, the Buddhists, for example, having really said, now we've got the trick. As the Buddha said after his enlightenment, now I've found you out, you who build the house. I'm going to take the house apart. The roof beam is brought down. Desire is the builder of the house. See, I've found you. Never again shall you build it. And the Buddhists thought that one over. I asked, they're crazy. We found a way out of samsara, the wheel of birth and death. And somebody one day said, but isn't that rather selfish? You get yourself out. What about all the other people? Don't you have any feeling of compassion? Oh, yes, they said, of course. Oh, we forgot that, didn't we? Uh, <laughs> uh, let's come back again and uh, help all these people out. And then they got very sophisticated about it. And they said, look, if nirvana is released from birth and death, then they're opposed. And so nirvana and birth and death go together and they will have to imply one another. So 
you're only really released if you see that, if you see that nirvana and birth and death are the same thing. Now I'm going to pull a fast one on you. <laughs> so every time an incarnation occurs, it feels like this one. See, it might be quite different. We might be reincarnated in another universe as beings of an altogether different shape. See, not at all like human beings. But because we were used to it, we would feel that that was the human shape. We would say, well, that's natural. Obviously, obviously, that's the way things are. So naturally, if you appeared in the form of a, a spider, you would look around at other spiders and say, well, yes, of course, this is, a, this is natural shape to be in. This is the human shape. Something that is not us looks at us and thinks we look perfectly terrible. I mean, imagine how you look to a fish. Clumsy, cumbersome, stupid-looking thing. Because the fish is so elegant and graceful and can slide through the water so beautifully. The human beings can't even swim properly. <laughs> <laughs> So don't, don't you see that in every world that comes into being or could come into being, it seems just like it seems now. And every species that you could belong to would seem like this one. It would have its up end of what is highly intelligent and its low end of what is not so intelligent. You would be aware of superior forces and inferior forces. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the idea of mastering a situation unless there were situations you couldn't master. Now, we are not aware of species, of beings above us, unless you cultivate those forms of psychic awareness where you think you're in touch with angels or something of that sort. But the things that appear to be above us are great natural processes. Only we think they're rather stupid only very tough, too strong for us. Earthquakes, the elements, also some little ones. See, the virus is a very troublesome being. And this is where a human being really finds himself at his wit's end in dealing with molecular biology. So, you know, if the monsters don't get you, the minsters will, <laughs> the insects, you see. But at any rate, whatever level you're on, it always appears to be the same one. Now, we, therefore, naturally, don't we, we feel we're in the middle. We feel, for example, with the telescope that there is a world greater than us that is infinitely greater. We feel with the microscope there's a world below us that's infinitely smaller, and we seem to stand in the middle. Of course you seem to stand in the middle. Every creature stands in the middle, because if you stand on a boat in the middle of the ocean and you turn around through an angle of 360 degrees, you will see the same distance in every direction. That's because you see. And your sensitivity to sight or the intensity of light is the same in every direction. So you're in the middle. You're always in the middle. Where else would you be? In other words, anything that perceives anywhere is always in the middle. Anything that grows anywhere is always in the middle. It's betwixt and between. 
And the middle always has, therefore, extremes. It has extremes in space, as far west and as far east as you can think, as far on and as far back. And there's always a beginning and there's always an end, just as there's a left and a right, or a top and a bottom. So, also, if you are aware of a state which you call is, or reality, or life, this implies another state called isn't, or illusion, or unreality, or nothingness, or death. There it is. You can't know one without the other. And so as to make life poignant, it's always going to come to an end. That is exactly, don't you see, what makes it lively. Liveliness is change, is motion. And motion is going like this, see, going to fall out and be gone. So, you, you see, you're, you're always at the place where you always are. <laughs> Only it keeps appearing to change. And you think, wow, a little further on, we'll get that thing. <laughs> uh, I hope we don't go further down so that we lose what we already have. But that is built into every creature's situation, no matter how high, no matter how low. So, in this sense, all places are the same place. And the only time you ever notice any difference is in the moment of transition. When you go up a bit, you gain. When you go down a bit, you feel disappointed, gloomy, lost. You can go all the way down to death. Somehow, there seems to be a difficulty in getting all the way up. Death seems so final. Nothingness seems so very, very irrevocable and permanent. But then if it is, what about the nothingness that was before you started? So don't you see, what we've left out of our logic, and this is part of the game rule of the game that we are playing, the way we hoodwink ourselves is by attributing powerlessness to nothingness. We don't realize that is a complete logical fallacy. On the contrary, it takes nothing to have something. Because you wouldn't know what something was without nothing. You wouldn't know what the form is without the background space. You wouldn't be able to see anything unless there were nothing behind your eyes. Now imagine yourself with a spherical eye. You can see all around. But now what's in the middle? See? Even if I have all this behind me in view, suddenly I will find that there is something in the middle of it all. There's a hole in the middle of, of reality. Like now, there seems to be not so much a hole but a wall. But any animal which had eyes in the back of its head would have the sensation I'm describing. Now, you may say to me, 
Well, all that's wishful thinking. Because when you're dead, you're dead, see? <laughs> now, wait a minute. What's that state of consciousness that talks in that way? This is somebody saying something who wants to make a point. Now, what point does that sort of person want to make? Like when you're dead, you're dead, see? Why, that's one of the people who want to rule the world. It's to frighten you about death. Death is real, see? I mean, it's just, it's just, don't indulge in wishful thinking. All you people who dream of an afterlife and heavens and gods and mystical experiences and eternity, oh, you're just wishy-washy people. You don't face the facts. What facts? How can I face the fact of nothing, which is by definition not a fact? You see? All this is twaddle from whichever way you look at it. <laughs> so if you really go the whole way and see how you feel at the prospect of vanishing forever, of all your efforts and all your achievements and your, all your attainments turning into dust and nothingness, what is the feeling? What happens to you? It's a curious thing that in the world's poetry, this is a very common theme. The earthly hope men set their hearts upon turns ashes, or it prospers, and anon, like snow upon the desert's dusty face, lighting a little hour or two, is gone. All kinds of poetry emphasizes the theme of transience. And there's a kind of nostalgic beauty to it. A banquet hall deserted. After the revelry, all the guests have left and gone their ways. And the table with overturned glasses, crumpled napkins, breadcrumbs, and dirty knives and forks lies empty and the laughter echoes only in one's mind. And then the echo goes. The memory, the traces are all gone. That's the end, you see. Do you see, in a way, how that is saying the most real state is the state of nothing. That's what it's going to all come to. With these physicists who think of the energy of the universe running down, dissipating in radiation gradually, 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 until there's nothing at all left. And for some reason or other we're supposed to find this depressing. But if somebody is going to argue that the basic reality is nothingness. Where does all this come from? Obviously from nothingness. <laughs> Once again, you get how it looks behind your eyes, see? So cheer up, you see. This is what is meant in Buddhist philosophy by saying we are all basically nothing. 
when the sixth patriarch says, the essence of your mind, that's how it is behind your eyes, is intrinsically pure. The pure doesn't mean a non-dirty story state of mind, as it is apt to mean in the word Puritan. Pure means clear, void. So you know the story when the sixth patriarch was given his office as successor because he was truly enlightened, there was a poetry contest. And the losing one wrote the idea that the mind, the consciousness, was like a mirror which had to be polished. And constantly, one, I have to polish my mirror. I have to purify my mind, see? So that I'm detached and calm and clear-headed, you know, buddhaed. <laughs> but the one who won the contest said, there is no mirror. And the nature of the mind is intrinsically void. So where is there anywhere for dust to collect? See? So in this way, by seeing that nothingness is the fundamental reality, and you see it's your reality, then how can anything contaminate you? All the idea of your being scared and put out and worried and so on is just nothing. It's a dream. Because you're really nothing. But this is the most incredible nothing. And the sixth patriarch, likewise, went on to contrast emptiness of indifference, which is sort of blank emptiness. See? If you think of this nothingness as mere blankness, and you hold on to the idea of blankness, and kind of grisly in about it, you haven't understood it. He said, nothingness is really like the nothingness of space, which contains the whole universe. All the sun, moon, and stars, and the mountains and rivers, and the good men and the bad men, and the animals and the insects, the whole bit, all are contained in void. So out of this void comes everything, and you are it. What else could you be? So what I'm showing you is that all this hocus-pocus about the fear of nothingness is that, truly speaking, nothingness is what we want to talk about when we talk about the spiritual. Only it's all been ignored. It's all been put down. And say, oh, nothingness, Blah! heaven preserve us from that. <laughs> but that's where the secret lies. And obviously the secret always lies in the place you never think of looking for it. In mythology, this comes again and again. Okay, this is Christmas. Where is the Christ born? In a palace? No, where no one would think of looking. In pigsty. Although, <laughs> I have a Japanese friend who once said to me, He said, you know, the real difference between Christianity and Buddhism is that Christ was the son of a carpenter and Buddha the son of a prince. <laughs> I thought that was rather funny. <laughs> well, we don't know who the prince is without the carpenter, do we? <laughs> Thank you.
Now, it's in that sense, really, that I could suggest to you that you meditate on nothingness. I know you can't think about it. But yet, when it becomes perfectly clear to you that that's what you are, and what you were before you were born, where can anybody stick a knife into you? Fundamentally, you see. All right. <laughs> Get it, because this is really the secret of the whole thing. If you see that, now we, we want to go on and be able to answer all the people who will come bug us about it. Because whether you say anything about it to other people or not, people are going to bug you about this. And then say, oh, no, 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 no. You, you, you really are something. You know, you, you'll know it. Oh, wowee. You know, life isn't the way you think. It's going to be awful. See? It's going to be real. Ooh. And, <laughs> The, uh, they'll say, oh, you can Where in such a philosophy as this is there any basis for the love of one's fellow men, for joy in children, for cultivating gardens, for doing this and that and the other? Well, so there is no basis in it. That's the same way there is no basis in emptiness for form, or so it seems. But only precisely to the degree that you have discovered the nothingness that you are you find you're suddenly full of energy. That is energy. It's the source and origin of energy. So that when, you know, there's, not, there's sort of nothing in your way, then you can do exactly what I was describing as having this glee for going into doing this, that, and the other thing and being thoroughly creative. But you can't be creative out of your just plain somethingness. You need nothingness to be creative. And that's what we are. And this too is, is real nothingness. And I think it's not darkness. It's not like being buried alive forever. It's not like rest. Even when the Catholics sing, rest eternal, grant unto them, O Lord, and let light perpetual shine upon them. This isn't rest, because it isn't motion. Neither motion nor rest. What is it? Nobody can imagine. And it's at that point, you see, where the imagination completely runs out and stops. There we've hit the thing. See, there you are right at the fundamental mystical reality. Now, what this is we're talking about is what mystics have quite often discussed. This isn't read very much. It's a state called agnosia, which means unknowing. There's a book called The Cloud of Unknowing, written by a, an English monk in the 14th century, but it's based on another book called Theologia Mystica, which was written in the 6th century 
by an unknown Syrian monk who used the name of Dionysius the Areopagite. It's absolutely fascinating, very short little book, which I translated long ago, back in 1943, and I'm about to reissue it. But this book ends up with a description of God, which is all in negatives. Not any kind of anything you can imagine at all. Not light, not power, not spirit, not fatherhood, not sonship, not uh, this, that, and the other. All the way down the line. Everything that anybody's ever said or thought about God is denied. Because God is infinite and therefore beyond the reach of any conception at all. So he says that anybody who, having a vision, thought he saw God, would not have seen God, but some creature that God has made that is less than God. So again, you approach in a Christian context, said in such a way that even St. Thomas Aquinas bought it, <laughs> that you can't impute heresy to it, because everybody's got to agree that God is the witch than which there is no witcher, and this guy spells it out. So in the same way, you get Nagarjuna, saying that the ultimate reality is shunyata, voidness. So Shankara gets at it, where he says, that which is the knower or the knowing in everything can never itself be an object of its own knowledge, for fire doesn't burn itself, although it burns other things. So we never know what the Brahman is, just like the eyes don't ever see the head. If you put something there, you are stopping short of nothing, and you don't get the whole benefit of it, that's all. If you insist that there is something there, that there is the loving father at the end of the line, or the paradise garden, you are really cheating yourself. Because it's only when you have thorough emptiness and real downright nothingness at the end of the line that you get the full impact. No holds. Look, Mama, no hands. See? <laughs> now, I really think that's the simplest thing I can possibly tell you. I really don't know what else there is to be said about this whole Zen project or... Uh, mysticism, Vedanta, what have you. It comes down to that, and there are infinitely many ways of evading. But what I'm trying to point out to you, you see, is the way in which you see the point by taking the line of least resistance, by facing the facts, by not super-adding to truth something you contribute to it, your own business that you put up, but saying, if I follow what I conceive or can see with my senses to be reality, as far as we can look, it seems that this is sort of the inevitable conclusion which everybody has spent endless effort in arguing about and resisting.
not realizing <laughs> that if they went the whole way, how splendid it would be. And that's all you have to do. This concludes session six of Out of Your Mind, essential listening from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. Our program continues with session seven.